full steam with Jess Kelly. Brought to you by Work Human, the number one best workplace in Ireland. And we're hiring. Visit workhuman.com. This is News Talk. the series that profiles some of the most influential people from the world of science, technology, engineering, arts and maths, all of whom just happen to be women. I'm Jess Kelly and my guest today is the Data Protection Commissioner, Helen Dixon. She's tasked with keeping the big tech companies in check and ensuring our data is not being held or used inappropriately. It was recently confirmed that Ms Dixon has secured a second five-year term as Commissioner. She rarely does sit down profile interviews, but I managed to get an hour of her time and talk through her early career and even crammed in some GDPR banter. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Um, so before we talk about what it is that you do, uh, let's start at what you studied in college and how you got to this point today. Okay, I, I have to warn you, I'm probably classified as a person who believes in lifelong learning, so okay. it's quite a bit that I've studied in college. My undergraduate degree was in applied languages. I did French and German. Then I went on uh, and almost directly after that did a master's in European Economic and Public Affairs in UCD. Uh, and later on when I started work, I was working in a technology company, I decided to do a postgraduate diploma in computer science to understand a little bit more about the area I was working in and computer programming in particular. Later on, I studied for the FE1s at the Law Society okay. uh, because I was interested in, in law in the area in which I worked. I did a master's in governance uh, and I've done a postgraduate qualification in judicial skills and decision making uh, and other areas of study. So I tend to, as I move on in my career, I, I tend to like to supplement my on the experience, uh, on the job experience with, with study as well. So and it's an you, ongoing process. Yeah, I was going to say, Jesus, <laughs> how many letters do you have after your name? But uh, are you naturally academic? Do you enjoy the academia? Does it come naturally to you? Yeah, I liked school when I was younger. I, I, I do like studying to supplement uh, on-the-job experience. So yeah. I think when you can work in a theory-based way, you get better outcomes. So so I like both. I'm, I'm academic, but I liked, I'm a doer as well. Yeah. And so did you have a vision of what you wanted to, to be when you grow up, I suppose, when you were studying in college? Ooh, when I was studying in college, I was going to say when I was at school, mm. I did the Leaving Cert. I was barely, had barely turned 17 when I did the Leaving Cert. Oh, wow. So I didn't really have a clear idea even of what I wanted to study. And I thought languages sounded glamorous and uh, being a member of the EC was in vogue at the time. So um, that's why I set off uh, on, on that route. No, I didn't really have, have a clear picture. And I, I've worked in quite a variety of different areas. Mm -hmm. I worked for two technology companies for the first 11 years of my career. Then I decided to join the public sector. I came in as the first senior manager, recruited externally at assistant principal level, uh, and I had roles in science, technology and innovation policy. Later on, I was promoted. I became the registrar of companies. And then in 2014, I decided to apply for the job of commissioner when it became vacant. Wow, okay, so that is a, quite a broad spectrum of experience that you've mm. garnered before you took this role. Um, when you worked in the tech companies, what, what position within the companies were you, was it? So the first company I worked for uh, after I graduated was a company that, that at the time was called Worthington Data Solutions. It's since shortened its name to Worth Data. Um, and it was a family-owned Californian-based company. 
that manufactured barcode readers uh, and had created its own barcode generation software. Um, so true innovators, uh, the founders uh, of the company. Um, and they had decided to open a European operation to supplement the, the uh, US operation that they had. Uh, and initially, actually, they located the operation in Switzerland because they came, visited Europe and thought the mountains and scenery in Switzerland were beautiful. Yeah. Um, and later, of course, they discovered that Switzerland is outside the EU and that it was, it was more challenging to ship products into the EU. Um, so they decided to relocate to Ireland and that's when they recruited me. So I had a very general role as the operations manager for that company. Uh, for the six years that I worked for them, we were a small team of about four to five people. We did everything. We sold on the telephone every day in French and German. I got to use my languages. We did technical support on the telephone on our own products. And then in the afternoons, we packed and shipped the products from our offices in Dublin and shipped them to customers who'd placed orders. So it was a fantastic uh, experience. Then I went on and was hired by Citrix, Citrix Systems. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a very big uh, global software company that does enterprise solutions. And there I was the enterprise technical services manager for Europe, Middle East and Africa. So basically I headed up a team of engineers, both remote and on-site, uh, that delivered enterprise level support to very big uh, enterprise clients. And how did you find managing a team like that? It was quite a challenge managing a team that was uh, remote yeah. from me. So I had staff that were based in South Africa in some cases, uh, a lot of staff in Germany. Um, but we actually, because of the type of systems that Citrix sold, we had excellent communication tools and document sharing tools. Uh, and so technology overcame a lot of the uh, obstacles that you'd otherwise have. But it, it, it was challenging and it was also very interesting. Did you like having people come to you with, you know, problems and looking for guidance or was it a bit like, oh, go away? In, in terms of staff coming yeah. to me? Uh, no, I like, I like that part of the role. I like to be very engaged and, and hands-on with, with the staff that I work with. I, I, I think when you have a shared passion about what you're trying to do and what you're trying to deliver, that kind of communication is, is everyday and normal. So mm -hmm. I enjoy it. And so then what made you leave that role into uh, where you went to next? So I think I hit that phase that, that I've read subsequently that a lot of people in their early 30s hit where, where they think there's some, some greater meaning uh, that they might seek out in terms of their work. And I've read that actually a lot of people at that point turned to being teachers or, or delivering in a role like that. In my case, I, I decided that I wanted, wanted to try delivering public service. Uh, and I was attracted to the type of policy roles that I saw advertised and I thought I could make a difference in, in a public service type environment. Um, and, and so that's why I applied when I saw that the civil service was advertising assistant principal grade jobs externally for the first time, uh, I decided to throw my hat in. And was there a shift going from, you know, the company where you were before Citrix, where you're doing phone calls and then packaging things to Citrix to then suddenly being in an office, very structured <laughs> environment? I'd say it's a bit of a culture shock. You, you can't imagine. I mean, I, I went from a beautiful, modern office in East Point Business Park where, where we wore jeans every day and uh, we'd all sorts of technology, as I said, to communicate. We used a lot of our own solutions in-house and of course it was a global company mm -hmm. 
to suddenly being in uh, my own office in, in the Department of Enterprise on Kildare Street with, with a large wooden door that was locked behind me as, as I, was, I was ushered in uh, and on a long corridor where from one end of the day to the, uh, the end of it, I, I, I saw nobody else. Wow. There was no open plan working environment. There were lots of silent, polished corridors. So as a physical environment, it was enormously different. And in terms of the types of technology we used to communicate, hugely <laughs> different imagine. as well. And then, of course, as you said, the, the, the means of working is, is considerably different. It's a very hierarchical structure. Um, and, and I discovered fairly quickly that even once I'd assessed uh, a policy matter and come to a decision, that wasn't the end of it. I had to put it up the line and have two or three people above me say, yes, we agree, we agree. So very, very different. Was that frustrating, again, coming from a place whereby you are all things to all people and you just get on with it? It wasn't so much frustrating as very different and you have to adapt. Okay. So if, if, if you want to make a difference, you have to come inside the system uh, perhaps at the right time, give feedback on how you think things could work efficiently uh, and without being obnoxious about it, bring in some of your private sector experience and lend it. I mean, nobody wants to listen to someone saying all day long, when I was at Citrix, yeah. we did it this way. So you, you had to pick the time to say, well, look, there might be another way of doing that. So, no, I wasn't frustrated. I, I, I adapted uh, and I was focused on working within the system, albeit trying to improve it to deliver the results that, that I wanted to deliver. And did you get the sense that you were delivering public service? Because again, I know from friends of mine who, who work uh, in similar enough jobs, and they do get that sense of a reward at the end of it. And they can see the, the finish line for their different projects. Did you get that sort of element? Very much so. I, th I think in the first area that I was in that was very policy driven, it was policy around science, uh, science policy and innovation policy and investment in the uh, establishment of a national science foundation in Ireland, Science Foundation Ireland. I was less directly dealing with the public. Uh, and so measuring the outputs are really in, in very big picture terms around getting the foundation established and funded mm -hmm. and so on. But in later roles that I had, for example, I managed uh, an area of the Department of Enterprise called Economic Migration Policy, where part of my role was to manage the system of green cards and work permits in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And again, very directly dealing with, with applicants who were trying to apply for work permits, also companies who were seeking staff. Uh, and wanted to ensure that process was working efficiently. And, and very much there, we, we could measure the service we were delivering and the efficiency of the service we were delivering and the effects then that it had uh, in terms of the economy. Mm. So very much so. And so w what was your game plan then at that stage when you were in that? Did you sort of see yourself staying in that department for as long as humanly possible or did you always have bigger visions or want a new challenge? No, I'm, I'm not particularly a game plan person. And okay. if you ask me now, what's my game plan for <laughs> 10 years time? Uh, there isn't one. I, I tend to focus very intensively and work hard uh, at, at whatever job I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I will believe in whatever I am doing and, and what I can deliver out of it. And I think when you're responsible for managing a lot of staff, which I have been for a long time, I've had 
big teams, if, if, if the leader of the organisation doesn't believe in what they're doing and isn't very committed to what they're doing, then I think it's very hard to bring staff uh, along with you. So I, I had no game plan, but when I saw the job of Data Protection Commissioner advertised, it, it did really speak to me in terms of what the role is about. Uh, that, that idea that we have to use data and use personal data and use it to our benefit, but equally we have to respect the right of each individual to have their personal data protected and where is the balance and, mm -hmm. and how can we justify certain uses of personal data and when should we not attempt to legitimise uses of personal data. So it really interested me uh, in terms of, of where that balance is struck and trying to bring clarity around all of those issues which I've been trying to do for the last four and a half years. And it's really interesting, so since you took up this role, obviously the consumer has become more aware of the importance of their personal data, uh, the protection, the privacy and the controls that they have, but also how it can be misused. Because for such a long time, sort of the trajectory of technology, consumer technology anyway, for, to begin with, has been so great. We just wanted all of the new gadgets, all of the services, take all of my information, I'll take every box, just let me have the apps on my phone. And then suddenly, like I was trying to pinpoint it in my own brain, I do think Cambridge Analytica was a big turning point for people. I agree with you, yeah. Because they sat up going, you know what? Did you, how have you found it sitting in, you know, behind your desk and watching this transformation happen? Well, I think it's all very positive in terms of that greater user awareness of, mm -hmm. of their rights and also their need to be vigilant in terms of handing over their personal data in, in, in different circumstances. So I think the GDPR has been a huge boon for all of us. The timing has been good. It was adopted by the EU in May 2016, as you know, and then came into application in, in, in May 2018. So in the lead up to the GDPR, we saw really positive and massive engagement in Ireland, not just by companies and public sector bodies in terms of getting ready, which is important in terms of how they meet their obligations, but really the public has, has come hugely on board and the media has as well. Yeah. And GDPR is really now a very mainstream topic uh, and, and it's discussed and debated on lots of radio programmes. Um, the, the downside, I suppose, of it becoming a mainstream topic is that some misunderstandings of, of what the law is about have also arisen. Yeah. And some extrapolations of, of the principles have really been taken to some uh, extremes, I would say. So recently, actually, my office has had to publish uh, the first of a series of myth-busting guidelines around the GDPR. Ooh. So what are the kind uh, of myths that go, because you do hear people going, uh, that's a breach of GDPR, and it's like, I've said hello to you, calm down. Like, people do love throwing <laughs> yes. it out there now. Well, that's so. a very good example, that saying hello could become a breach yeah. of, of, of GDPR. So you'll see if you have a look at the, the document on our website, we've, we've cited a couple of different examples. Mm -hmm. um, there was one that we picked up on the Joe Duffy show, where uh, a caller had phoned in to say that, she was looking for an appointment with her hairdresser. The hairdresser simply couldn't fit her in at short notice and she was going to go off and go to a different hairdresser's. She needed her hair done urgently and she said, look, will you tell me the, the name and code of the dye you use on my hair and, and I'll have to go uh, elsewhere and just get it done. Uh, she'd been with this hairdresser for many, many years yeah. and they said no, they couldn't give it to her because of the GDPR. So um, it's it's sort of strange manifestations, 
strange manifestations like that. They right. told her she'd have to contact HQ and that within 30 days they would consider her request if she submitted it in writing and so on. So lots and lots of, of misunderstandings of, of where it applies and what it prohibits and, and, mm -hmm. and doesn't prohibit. It must be good though, or is it good from your side of things that uh, data protection is on people's minds now? Because I do think, as I said, for such a long time, we didn't really value our information. We just thought, oh, sure, what are they going to do with it anyway? Oh, I think that's very positive. For starters, in terms of the organisations that are supposed to safeguard our data, mm -hmm. if they don't have that awareness, then there is no compliance. Yeah. Um, and what we find a lot in terms of breaches notified to the office and in terms of issues that arise where complainants come to us and say, uh, this company has mistreated my personal data in the following way, what we find is that frontline staff in organisations often aren't adequately trained to recognise a scenario where they may be about to make an unauthorised disclosure of personal data, where they're failing, for example, to validate the identity sufficiently of a caller and so on. So I, I think increased awareness on the part of organisations that collect uh, personal data and then increased awareness on all of our parts is hugely positive. And one of the things we're seeing with the GDPR is that as organisations have had to publish details of their data protection officer, those organisations are reporting to us that they're getting a lot more complaints filed directly with them uh, by data subjects. In many cases, they're able to sort them out. It's mm -hmm. a data subject seeking access to what personal data the, the company holds on them uh, and the company complies within 30 days. But the, the volume of requests and complaints they're receiving directly now is increasing. And that's showing that accountability under the GDPR is working, that the organisations are forced to be accountable directly to, to those of us that are individuals using the services. And individuals are putting it up to the organisations more yeah. to demonstrate that accountability. When the notion of GDPR was first floated, I, I've sat through many, many presentations about GDPR <laughs> and you know heard what every tech company is doing to embrace GDPR and so on. And I'm not going to lie, I kind of dozed off in the first few because I was like, <laughs> I don't understand half of these terms. And it was, it was very, I suppose, terminology heavy. Mm. But then when the scenarios started to, or, or the scenes were painted of, you know, how this is going to impact you, the consumer, why it's good news for you, the consumer. And I think the big one for me as someone who was trying to talk about it on radio of why you should care was the spam emails. Like you're not, you know, if you buy a handbag in some place and they're going to email you the receipt and suddenly you're getting 20 emails a week from them going, buy this, buy this, buy this. That was a real tangible way for people to get on board. Was the messaging of this something that was considered by your offices to try and get the pitch right so that people fully understood what was happening? We, we did work hard in communicating to companies, public sector bodies, NGOs about their obligations mm. because it starts with them in terms of ensuring they're collecting and processing fairly. Uh, but we were also very focused on communicating to the public as well and ensuring that they understood uh, and went along and played their part in, in evolving the social norms that in many cases are going to dictate uses of personal data, particularly uh, when you consider internet companies. Mm. Um, so we did consider the messaging. Uh, we ran a, a, an ad campaign actually in the cinemas that was very much focused 
uh, using a character, a cartoon character called Data Protection Dave, uh, communicating in a very simple way to members of the public what their rights under the GDPR are. But it is an interesting question you ask because at some of the data protection conferences that I've participated in, I've been asked by commentators whether ultimately individuals are, are, are going to be disappointed in terms of what the GDPR delivers because in their assessment it's much more a tool for supervision by enforcers and regulators like my office of organisations rather than a tool that's a legal framework that's designed to deliver directly mm -hmm. uh, to, to data subjects and individuals. I'm not sure I fully agree because very clearly articulated under the GDPR are the rights of individuals that have to be respected uh, by organisations. Um, but I suppose it remains to be seen uh, how uh, individuals perceive the GDPR. One of the reasons why we produce those myth-busting guidelines is it's clear that some members of the public are getting very frustrated with the GDPR being thrown at them as a reason why an organisation yeah. can't or won't do something, mm -hmm. uh, and particularly in circumstances where it's not legitimate. So we want the experience of GDPR to be positive for the public and we want them to be clear on on, on what it does provide them and what it doesn't. So it's a work in progress. We're only about 10 or 11 months in. Yeah, it's still um, quite new. And it, it is quite new mm. and it's going to take some time to embed. What I thought was really interesting, and as I said, it was sort of a perfectly timed introduction here in Ireland because it was in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And suddenly you were hearing GDPR from the mouth of the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, and they were citing it as an example of data protection done well. I think their sentiment towards it has, they might have warmed up a little bit because uh, obviously they're, they sort of uh, operate and value data greatly. But do you think that we are going to see more of the tech companies who are US based uh, adopting elements of our GDPR? So I, I, I think Cambridge Analytica certainly contributed uh, in, in terms of the example you gave of Facebook to an understanding on their part mm -hmm. in terms of the public reaction they saw uh, to that, that they had to do better in, in data protection terms and communication terms. But I think it's not the only uh, event that is driving US companies now to talk up GDPR and to talk up the benefits of GDPR and the fact that it's a pan-European law. Mm -hmm. um, really, I think one of the big drivers of that narrative now is the fact that Washington is looking at the potential of introducing a federal data protection law in the US. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, California has gone ahead and legislated with the Californian Privacy Act, which is going to come into effect in January 2020. And now other individual states are looking at introducing laws. And so those US companies uh, do not want a scenario where there are 50 different state yeah. laws in the US that they have to comply with. Uh, and so now a lot of them are talking about the benefits of the GDPR and one uh, horizontal law that uh, would cover all of, of, of the states. So there are lots of different reasons, I think, why the GDPR is, is in vogue at the moment. But also rightly so, um, it's, it's a very strong law. It's a state-of-the-art law mm -hmm. in, in, in terms of the thinking behind it. You'll know that it's cleverly designed to be technology neutral. It's, it's high level and principles based. So it really can stretch to cover any scenario, any sector. 
Um, and uh, I, I think in that sense it is worth uh, any policymakers and lawmakers studying it very carefully in terms of what it can deliver. And did we need to have a European-wide GDPR? Like, was there a massive leap from what we had in terms of data protection in Ireland? And are we that bit more protected given that it is an EU-wide initiative? So I think we did need the GDPR. There was actually an EU-based law already in force. It was the 1995 Data Protection Directive. But because if, if, if you know anything about EU law, the directives have to be transposed into member state law in each individual member state. So they don't have direct effect as laws. You, you take the directive and you transposed it. Um, and so what that meant with the 1995 Data Protection Directive, and the reason you would assume it was an Irish law, is that it was transposed in very different and varying ways in the different member states. Uh, and it led to huge fragmentation over the years and really very varying standards. Mm. Uh, and the issue, of course, with that is there isn't a level playing field for organisations. Uh, there isn't a common digital single market in the EU which affects uh, the economy in the EU and then also in terms of, of the delivery on, on the right of individuals it, it was happening in very varying ways in the member states. So there was a need for the GDPR, there was a need for a, a regulation that has direct effect and applies in exactly the same ways in the different EU member states uh, and, and there was a need for a law that has brought in very strong enforcement powers for data protection authorities uh, that threat that now hangs over all organisations that if they misuse and infringe they may be subject to very serious sanctions including administrative fines. I, I think the point had come where that is necessary to drive home the message mm -hmm. that uh, protecting personal data is, is not a, a, an optional extra, it's, it's, it's a core requirement uh, in any organisation. Yeah, and it is any organisation, it's not just tech companies, it's everyone and anyone that has any sort of information. Uh, absolutely, you might be interested to know that um, a majority of complaints that our office receives, leaving aside the internet mm -hmm. uh, companies, a majority of the complaints we receive are against retail banks and telcos. So uh, a huge amount of individuals contact us. There are often issues around um, billing plans and their account mm -hmm. uh, and inaccurate information on their accounts and processing of their financial data and their credit cards in circumstances where they've already, for example, cancelled uh, an account during a standstill period, but uh, the company still goes ahead and processes um, the uh, credit card information. So a huge amount of uh, complaints to our office don't concern the internet companies and, and you know, as I said, banking, insurance companies, uh, telcos. I think that'll cost us money, basically. We care about immensely. Well, well that's it. I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what I say. It's, it's very personal to us when somebody yeah. uh, costs us money mm -hmm. in that way. And that often is what motivates us uh, to get up and make a complaint. And so the, the role that you applied for versus the role that you have today stuff has happened that I'm sure you couldn't have, en have envisaged, you know, th all those years ago. Are you embracing the challenge? Has there been a time when you think, oh my days, like this is quite intense? Because your remit is so broad and your office is so important um, in when it comes to data protection. 
So the role has evolved enormously. It's, it's almost unrecognisable. Um, an important thing to mention is, as, as my role has changed and as the role of the office has changed under the GDPR, we've been fortunate that the government has understood that it needs to uh, better fund the Data Protection Authority in Ireland. And so since I came on board at the end of 2014, we've had increased budgets each year and okay. we've been able to recruit additional staff. So for example, when I came on board at the end of 2014, we had about 27 staff at the Data Protection Authority, which is really far too few. Okay. We now have 135 today. We're recruiting another 30 this year. We've competitions uh, underway. Um, and uh, for budget 2020, I, I will apply for uh, a further increased budget because I believe it's justified uh, in terms of the span of the role that we've had. So while the role has changed, we've been recruiting staff, lawyers, technologists, communication specialists, investigators to keep pace with the demands of the role. But it is challenging because, of course, as we're trying to expand and grow the team and pick the right people, uh, we've also had a completely upended and changed legal framework being mm -hmm. the GDPR and the new 2018 Data Protection Act in Ireland. So there's a big uh, period of adjustment to the new legal framework. In fact, we're operating under the two legal frameworks for the moment because, as with any law, it's not retrospective. So any of any complaints that are, had originated pre-May 2018, we're still seeing those out under the new acts. So there's a complexity in terms of managing under all of those different uh, legal frameworks. Um, a key change under the GDPR is the one-stop shop. So it's now the case that my office is the lead supervisory authority under the GDPR for all of the US tech companies that are based here in Ireland. And the list is long. It's mm -hmm. Twitter, Dropbox, Yelp, Facebook, Ancestry.com, Google, Microsoft, uh, and that's just to name uh, but a few. Mm -hmm. So as the lead supervisory authority for all of those uh, internet companies, it means there's a high volume of work all the time, but it also means that there's a significant burden on us in terms of coordinating and communicating with our EU peers, because the other EU data protection authorities now rely on us to handle the complaints from individuals and ultimately to investigate the bigger systemic issues uh, and include them then ultimately in our decision-making processes. So that's a big change. We've uh, five staff from my office today, as I sit doing this interview with you, are out in Brussels at meetings of the European Data Protection Board. We've over 100 meetings of that European Data Protection Board and its expert subgroups that we have to attend in Brussels alone this year. So there's a huge coordination uh, overhead involved now at an EU level, and, and that's a significant change. And it's only going to grow as the technology, you know, because technology is ingrained in every single element of our lives now. You know, over the last few weeks alone on Tech Talk, I've been out with the HSC, I've been in schools, I've, you know, spoken to farmers, I've spoken to people from every single industry that you can imagine. And tech uh, in particular is there and a lot of data then is generated and input into some system. So I can only imagine the, the change that's going to happen to your office in the next two years because it's going to become more and more. 
Every organization is a technology organization now. Every Whether they like it or not. <laughs> yes, every organization is a data organization now. I think you did something on uh, wearables for cows. Yeah, I, I, I saw I on one of your, your yep. podcasts. You're absolutely right. There, there is no sector that, that isn't using technology. And typically those technologies are more and more processing personal data. And even outside of the sectors, we see individuals in, in everyday scenarios now potentially coming within the realm of being data controllers under mm. data protection legislation, where they're using things like dash cams or smart bells on their homes or extensive CCTV systems that may be trained outside the perimeters of their homes. So the technology that is collecting personal data is just all pervasive now. So it is going to get busier and we have to be smart as an office about how we regulate. Uh, even if we grow to a couple of hundred staff, we're already in the top tier of highly resourced data protection authorities in the EU and probably globally at this stage. Um, and, and, and rightly so, given the role we have. But even if we grow to a couple of hundred more staff, that's still a finite resource in, in terms of facing into what are hundreds and thousands of organisations uh, all processing and collecting personal data in more and more ways. So the ways in which we have to regulate in a smart way are about getting ahead of the curve and pushing out guidance to organisations, publishing more and more case studies that help the organisations that want to comply mm -hmm. understand how we would see compliance looking. Um, we've got to get quicker conducting the investigations we're conducting when we do find areas that look like an infringement so that we can push out the results of those investigations that will serve then as, as precedential um, cases for other organisations that, that, that want to comply. And as new technology comes on board, so again, you know, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence at the moment. As this technology becomes um, used more and more, as, as the use cases of it increase, do you think that we're going to have new types of data breaches? Or, you know, is the technology going to change the nature of uh, how these breaches happen and then the, therefore the work that you guys have to do in terms of the investigation? I think it's not going to be just in terms of breaches. Security is always going to be a big issue. Mm. And as we've more and more AI applications, that's going to become an increased imperative for organizations. I think the issues start much more fundamentally with how do you deliver transparency uh, to users when when there's uh, AI algorithms running in the background. Well, that's the big thing, because if you do ask a tech company, you know, how does this work? They'll say, oh, we can't tell you because it's a secret algorithm that is, you know, a billion dollar idea. So there is a lack of understanding or willing to be transparent there from a business point of view, which I can kind of get. Yeah, so what we're seeing is that organisations to comply with the transparency obligations under GDPR, where they're obliged to disclose to us uh, how the logic of the algorithms work. We really need to test, are they supplying us with sufficient information? Mm -hmm. And will that be sufficient into the future? Particularly where we get into machine learning and learning algorithms, where it simply won't be possible in advance to always signpost what personal data is going to be processed and what the outcomes will be. Mm. So uh, I think there's a big role for policy makers in all of this as well, in terms of looking to see, particularly as we get into the era of things like connected cars, 
at what additional sort of legislation potentially is going to be necessary to, to sit alongside and bolster what are the rules around personal data processing. Yeah, no, it's, it's, like, it's kind of fascinating, but also scary to think where this will all go and the nature of the, the breaches and the frequency of the breaches that um, can and will occur. You mentioned there about um, security and cyber security. Mm. When we hear of some of the high level uh, breaches, leaks, uh, hacks that go on, what way does the process work? How does your office get involved? How do the investigations happen? And then what happens? Because we only ever really hear the headline. Yeah, sure. And there are so many of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you're just getting hit with the notices every day. So under the General Data Protection Regulation, there's now a mandatory uh, requirement for organisations to report breaches to us within 72 hours of them becoming aware. Okay. Um, and uh, breaches are anything that poses a risk to data subjects in terms of, of uh, the breach around the personal data rules. So we've had thousands of breaches notified to us since the 25th of May. Some of them have been very low level human error, mm -hmm. uh, wrong bank statement in the wrong uh, envelope sent to the wrong individual. Other breaches notified to us have been systemic breaches affecting uh, millions of users like the Facebook token breach from last September. Mm -hmm. So when a breach is notified uh, to us now, we assess each individual case that's notified to us. We look at how the organisation has assessed it itself. We look at whether they plan to notify the affected individuals. Um, and uh, we do our own assessment to see would we agree with the approach that they're taking. Uh, and we look at what mitigation actions that they're taking. How have they identified what the cause of the breach was? What do they plan to do to ensure it doesn't happen in the future? Um, and and uh, if we're happy with the mitigation actions that, we're, that they're taking, we typically close that case pending receipt of any complaints from individuals or any other information that comes to hand about it. In other cases, we decide to open a full-scale investigation into the circumstances, the Facebook token breach being a case in point, where we want to look at whether the security requirements, and there are very specific security requirements under Article 32 of the GDPR organisations need to meet. We want to look at whether they have been met. We want to look at whether the principle of accountability that governs everything organisations have to do under the GDPR is being met and, and, and to what standard it's been delivered. So if it's something very big, we will open an investigation into it to understand it better and to ultimately to decide if there has been an infringement uh, of the GDPR. No company wants to have a hack or a leak or anything like that happen to them. But when it does arise, are they open to your office coming in and doing these investigations? Or is there the fear factor there of, oh God, they might find something else? I, do, I don't think any organisation uh, is delighted when we okay. send them a commencement letter uh, of an investigation. Um, and this is all the more so the case because of the threat of sanctions and administrative fines uh, under the GDPR. Um, so no, I wouldn't say anyone is, is particularly happy uh, when, when that happens, but for the most part uh, we're getting cooperation from the organisations that we are investigating into, uh, albeit they're not progressing as quickly as we want. Organisations are often asking us for extensions when we put investigation questions to them. 
um, and they're raising procedural issues as well okay. with us that are slowing down the investigations in some cases particularly around the one-stop shop and what information we're going to share with our fellow data protection authorities when they respond to us and so on. It's inevitable because the GDPR is new and it's new for companies that are being investigated as well and, and, and they're trying to cover their bases and understand uh, what the risks are in terms of an investigation as well. So it, it's simply a process I think the bigger companies accept they must engage with. There mm. is no evading it either. I think the big brands are aware, or a lot of the brands now are aware of the reputational damage that can be done. Like it takes a long time to build up uh, customer loyalty, particularly now when we have so many choices for pretty much everything. And I do think if you, unless you are the likes of Facebook, but if you are a sort of a mid to big company and you do have some form of you know misuse of data or whatever it may be it can be tricky enough to build up the consumer sentiment once again because trust is becoming more and more of an issue today i think i i think that is very true and under the 2018 act when we do come to making decisions in some of the bigger investigation cases we currently have running now we'll be obliged to publish uh, those decisions and any sanctions uh, that we apply and i think that's going to generate its own bad or good publicity for companies depending mm -hmm. on the outcomes of those investigations as well which is going to contribute on the pressure uh, the pressure on them in terms of of delivering on 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 what individuals anticipate they should receive i don't know if you can ans uh, answer this question but i'm going to ask it anyway what sort of relationship do you have with the likes of the facebooks and the googles and the so on you know is it an ongoing day-to-day -day relationship or is it uh, when helen comes knocking Pull down the blinds. Oh, we, we've we've very very frequent contact with them. Um, I, I would describe it now, particularly post GDPR, as being very much multifaceted. So we have investigators in our organisation in in respect of of several of those organisations you mentioned that are dealing with uh, lawyers and data protection teams in the organisations on these statutory investigations that we now have open into very specific matters. Then, on the other hand, we may be meeting product managers uh, in those organisations where they tell us we're going to launch something big and new mm -hmm. um, and we want to run by you uh, what the product is going to look like, what personal data is being processed, how we're going to deliver the transparency uh, and get your views. So they may seek to consult with us. That's a good sign, isn't it, that it, they're it, thinking about it from it, the outset? It is a good sign. As I say, a lot of companies want to get it right. Because the GDPR is principles-based, there, there is no detailed prescriptive code of, of, of what the standard of transparency must look like. We've mm -hmm. issued a lot of guidance about it. We tell internet companies in particular, don't put it all in one big 100-page privacy notice, make it layered have click-throughs, have videos as well as text and so on. Um, but still, they can never be sure, does this add up to the standard that uh, is anticipated as meeting the GDPR? So they do like to engage, mm. they like to understand, uh, and they like to be pushed to make improvements before they launch the product. They may equally seek to consult us on a formal basis uh, under the General Data Protection Regulation if um, they are implementing a new technology uh, where they've been obliged to conduct a data protection impact assessment and they've identified risks in the project that they haven't been able to fully mitigate. Mm -hmm. They're obliged to bring uh, that to us 
uh, go through the data protection impact assessment uh, with us, discuss the risks, uh, and, and then we will make a decision as to whether it can proceed. So, so that's another facet of the engagement. I may equally then have separate engagement with senior executives in those organisations um, where, where I plead the message of GDPR, what it's intended to deliver, how it needs to be embedded in their organisations from product managers to frontline staff dealing with individuals complaining uh, and so on. So it's multifaceted. Okay. Um, also, frequently on a day-to-day -day basis, the people we're dealing with in those organisations, aside from the product managers and engineers, they're often the data protection team. Okay, so so they're people that really are on message with what we're yeah. um, delivering to them, but equally have the challenge within their own organisation of translating that message into reality. I remember a good few years ago, there was a story about, I think it was to do with a supermarket's uh, loyalty club, uh, where there was a, a breach. I'm intrigued to know how, as the different supermarkets and you know retail stores embrace technology, whether it is new high-end tills or you know collating data to identify trends of you know this washing powder is more popular than this one you know is there the potential for those type of companies uh, to misuse customer information like it's the fine line between using data to change your offering to entice customers in versus maybe the manipulation of customers through the data to make them spend more money. Is there a fine line or is that just business? Oh, I think that's a very good question. Part of what we saw with Cambridge Analytica is that the companies behind uh, the processing they were doing in many cases were data brokers. Mm. So these are, are companies that take the data from those supermarket loyalty programs they take data from any other source they can get it and they create a very rich profile of you and me that they then sell to other organisations and, and typically it's used in the ad tech sector to target more and more specific ads to each of us in order to manipulate us to purchase. And the evidence is that targeted advertising works. Um, so, so the more they know about us and the more they can profile us, the more likely it is to convert into a sale. When, when they serve an ad. So that's actually a sector that we're looking into uh, extensively at the moment. Uh, we're looking at, at the data brokers, broker sector and in particular one of the large international data brokers that's based in Ireland to look at where they're sourcing that data, whether an individual who, who shops in a supermarket has any idea that data ends up ultimately with the data broker, how it's being combined with other sources of data, and then ultimately how it gets sold and ends up being used. So it's a good question. We're going to come to more answers mm -hmm. uh, on it. But I think, again, to go back to that idea that members of the public are more aware, you do have to be conscious when you sign up to a supermarket loyalty program that uh, the reason you're getting points uh, for your purchases isn't just the loyalty, it's the intelligence about what it is you purchase and how frequently you purchase it that you're handing over. You're handing over very valuable profile information about yourself. Uh, and it is worth reading the terms and conditions to see uh, what consents you're given. It's the thing uh, of like if you don't see a sharing. product, you're the product basically, which is kind of a grim realisation that we're kind of coming to now. It's always worth having your eyes open and, and, and being aware that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. Uh, 
I was at uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas earlier this year and there was one of the French tech companies, they have this entire hallway and one of them had developed a really smart CCTV system for shopping malls that would scan your face, take a guesstimate of your age and then as you walk by billboards, ads for products in certain stores that you would be interested in based on your age would pop up. Sounds very kind of like minority reports. Very cool but also a little bit nerve-wracking if it was implemented. It would be devastating if it guessed you were old. I did it and it said I was 42. I was oh devastated. I was 29 at the time. I was honestly heartbroken. But anyway, I will not be using their service. Uh, but I just wonder, again, for those, and this is a hypothetical, so I know you probably can't give me a definite, but if a big shopping mall here was to implement that type of technology, would there have to be the sign saying that we are using this type of technology in store? Or how does that work? Is that something that you guys have to toss over? Again, we'd have to look at it in detail. Okay. What you've described typically is probably facial detection rather than facial recognition. There's yeah, so no, there's no, there's no it's database just of yeah, yeah. pictures in the background that's identifying you as Jess Kelly. And, and there may be no retention either. Mm -hmm. There's simply a, an identification that you're female, the demographic. I'm 42 and, apparently. <laughs> <That's awful. laughs> um, and then an immediate attempt uh, to target you and direct you in, in terms of the store. Mm. Um, so there may or may not then be um, significant personal data issues arising and, and risks in terms of of the personal data, but again, we'd, we'd have to look at it in, in the specific detail. Mm. But the issue that you raise about it being potentially creepy, that's a very relevant issue in terms of, of data protection and what's done with personal data. There um, are two uh, individuals that I quote quite a bit, Omer Tanay and Jules Polonetsky, that wrote a paper, I think it was back in 2014, called The Theory of Creepy. Uh, and in that paper, they look at data privacy issues and, and where the public have decided that that goes beyond the creepy line and that's acceptable. And they also trace through that idea that social norms are evolving all the time yeah. and changing. And I use an example from that paper that they quote, which is um, number ID, caller ID. So they talk about the fact that when that first was introduced as a technological capability in the 1990s. Uh, people thought it was outrageous that they made a phone call to a company on, on the uh, LED display. The company yeah. could see what number was calling. And they felt it was an invasion of their privacy that their number was now being displayed. And now fast forward to today, none of us would answer a call on our mobile if, Unless if, had if the individual <laughs> is identified to us. So in terms of social norms, we've swung completely on that. Yeah. And, and when once we saw it as an invasion of our privacy, now we see it in exactly the opposite terms, that an unknown person trying to contact me is an invasion of my privacy. So there's always that backdrop of what seems shocking to us now in terms of those uh, displays calculating that we're female, what demographic we belong to, um, who knows uh, as the technology mainstreams how individuals will start to view it. Mm. So really uh, this comes back to that idea of our awareness. We do have to vote with our feet to a large extent sure. and, and it's up to us to wave the red flag and say that's creepy. 
But I think what's interesting on that point, though, was in the wake of Cambridge Analytica, I remember the day it happened, I was on the Pat Kenny show and I was explaining it, and all of these texts came in going, this is outrageous, I'm deleting my profile, how do I delete my profile? And then we asked the question two weeks later, did you delete your profile in the wake of Cambridge Analytica? And the majority of people said no, because they like the convenience factor or, you know, they interact with their friend who lives in Australia through Facebook. So I suppose... For, for people, so I'm 30 now, I am consumed with technology, I absolutely love it, but I'm very aware of my privacy and I do have this sort of internal seesaw where I kind of go, okay, do I really want the benefit of this in trade for X, Y or Z information? Or like even silly things like the notifications I get, I turn notifications off for everything now because I just find it invasive and it takes too much of my headspace. Do you think that we need to, like everyone needs to have that seesaw because it's not as clearly defined for my little sister who's 25 versus my big sister who's 34. They would have different values and different understandings of what's creepy when it comes to technology. That's it, and I think it's exactly as you describe. We, we make individual choices on the trade-offs. So there's a, a US cryptographer, Bruce Schneier, and he writes frequently on, on issues to do with data protection, data privacy, and he's one very interesting book called Data and Goliath. Um, where he talks about that very issue of the choices we all make as individuals and he, he gives quite extreme examples of things we could all do, you know, nothing short of wearing a brown, a brown paper bag <laughs> over our heads. Um, and, and, and he talks about the fact that it's never worth becoming totally paranoid either when mm -hmm. you have to live in society uh, as it exists. But he talks about in his own case how he avoids as far as possible social media use and, and having accounts on social media. Uh, and he says everyone has their own sweet spot in terms of where that trade-off is. And he gives the example that in his case, he does sign up to uh, airline loyalty mm -hmm. programs because he does think it's worth having the points to upgrade to, to a first-class seat. So there he's consciously made made a decision that even though they are going to profile him in terms of the types of journeys that he take, takes and uh, there is an additional usage of his personal data, it's worth it to him. So I, I, I think it's not that there's anything good or bad. We do all have to make choices, but what we want to ensure is that individuals are making informed choices in the circumstances that they're in. So this, again, it comes back to another point that we've sort of talked about in the past, which is the individual responsibility. So again, I change phone three times a month because I'm reviewing the devices. I log in with the same address, I download the same apps, all of my information is there. I once gave one of those phones away as a competition prize and I realised I hadn't wiped the phone because they were like, uh, this is your mom's number and I'm like, that's a bit strange, but that was my own fault. Does a lot of this come down to personal responsibility? So you can't take all the benefits of the tech without being aware of what you're signing up to, what you're giving away. And also knowing the fact that ads can be personalised and targeted. You know, when we talk about this on air, people are still baffled by that. I don't put too much emphasis on the personal responsibility okay. point, uh, and, and my office doesn't at this point. Well, I think it's always true that, as in any facet of life, we all must uh, take personal responsibility and try and be as informed as we can be about anything that we're doing. I, I think we're still too much at the point where the odds are stacked against the individual, even the one who wants to be personally responsible. I think there are there is still a lot of work to be done on better transparency, 
better technologies to allow us uh, see more easily what's been done with our personal data, better protections being implemented. So um, I, th I think that point is always there, but it's not one I would place any emphasis on at this point. Brilliant stuff. I've been so excited to have a conversation about GDPR, <laughs> so thank you for indulging You're very me welcome. and uh, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks.